0: Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do
1: you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the next Picture Show, a movie the week podcast devoted to a classic film, the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias here again with Tasha Robinson and Keith Phipps. Once again, our regular co-host Genevieve Kosky is out, which puts the three of us one step closer to inheriting her estate. (laughs) (laughs) So last week we talked about Broken Arrow, a 1950 Western that was among the first to attempt a more sympathetic understanding of Native Americans. In this episode, we're digging into Martin Scorsese's evocation of another shameful chapter in America's treatment of indigenous people with Killers of the Flower Moon. Based on David Grant's book, Killers of the Flower Moon stars Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart, a somewhat dim-witted and impressionable man who arrives in Osage territory in Oklahoma after serving in World War I. His uncle William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro, is a wealthy rancher who has educated himself in the language and culture of the Osage and presents himself as a benefactor around town, but his private machinations are much more insidious. The Osage have gotten rich off the ocean of black gold in the territory, and King is actively conspiring to funnel that money in his direction. As a number of Osage people are either murdered or die under mysterious circumstances, Ernest is encouraged to court Molly, a Native American whose two sisters are already married to white men. Played by Lily Gladstone, Molly recognizes that Ernest enjoys the finer things in life, but the affection between them seems genuine and the two begin a life together. Meanwhile, the body count continues to rise until federal investigators are brought in to get to the bottom of it. We'll talk about it after the break.
0: Why did you come here?
1: I work with my uncle.
0: You scared of him?
1: Oh, he's a he's the nicest man in the
0: world. The old sage. Their time is over. We got to take back control of our home. I was sent down from Washington, D.C. to see about these murders. We have so many deaths, we've lost count. There's just
1: bad luck. Seems more like an epidemic than bad luck to me. Those just dying by the enemy. Do not let them die alone.
0: Evil surrounds my heart.
1: Okay, so Killers of the Flower Moon. I think I wrote the review of this. I've discussed this with Keith. Tasha, I have absolutely no idea what you thought of this film. So let's start with you. I'm going to just kind of... uh cringe should i be cringing in anticipation or uh, hit me hit me let's hear it oh
0: i mean hated every moment of no, it just why? Com- complete complete incompetent filmmaking like uh, scorsese doesn't know where to put a camera the editing is what did you think i was gonna think of this movie
1: i don't know i don't know sometimes you haven't liked his films when i have
0: It's true, but a lot of the films that I haven't liked of his that you have, I feel, are a problem that I have with Scorsese that a lot of the other specifically women that I talk to about Scorsese's films have that a lot of male film critics don't share this opinion is I find some of them very repetitive just in terms of of going back to some of the same wells in terms of not just characters, but like storytelling methods, his love of the montage of, and here's 12 gangsters with funny names that, were, that are barely going to feature in the rest of this film, if ever. Scott's That's just shaking me. his head.
1: I'm thinking of two films that do that and they're both awesome. Go, There's go at least
0: three. <laughs> One of the things that struck me about Killers of the Flower Moon is just a sense that, once again, I was seeing a movie that, that deals with like all of these films that Scorsese loves, you know, criminals and criminality, like guilt and attrition, the question of like culpability, people like living high on the hog of off the gains of like ill gotten wealth. A lot of different things that I have seen him be fascinated with before, but just in a in a story that I've never seen him tell before in a mode that I haven't really seen him in before. To be fair, I still haven't seen Age of Innocence. Oh my God, so good. In terms of, you know, there are probably some elements of this movie that I would have seen in his other films if I was much more of a completist about his movies. But I don't know, in terms of, there are definitely people complaining that it's slow, that it's full of details that don't really contribute to the story or don't need to be there. I did not have that problem at all. I was just really caught up in the sweep of all of this and also just in the characters. I think the characters here are really interesting people played in really interesting ways. And the sense of immersion in this movie got me beyond any sense of like this is this is too leisurely or like this this could move along faster. I was very taken with this movie. I'm still sort of processing the ending, having not read the David Graham book. I didn't know what kind of conclusion the story came to. And for some unknown reason, it did not occur to me that, at least as I was caught up in the story, that it would end the way it does with, like, we can we can get into spoilers in a bit, but very broadly speaking, it would end with the historical facts. In retrospect, I was probably expecting something a little more Inglorious Bastards. And instead I got the real history, which is uh, not exactly the most triumphant and cathartic moment that you can imagine. So I walked out feeling pretty devastated, but I just, uh, overall, I, I really liked this film a lot.
1: <sighs> I'm going to breathe a qualified <laughs> sigh of relief at that. Um, and I, though I will say the, the ending is really what sold the whole movie for me. I mean, obviously I was on board with it, but when you get to that Lucky Strike radio presentation, I found that whole sequence to be resonant in so many different ways. Obviously, obviously, it's been just something that many critics have, have gotten onto. Many of my favorite critics, people like Elisa Wilkinson and Sam Adams and Stephanie Zakharak, they've all written about the end of the movie and what it means to them. And, it, and what I found fascinating was just how this wrenching piece of history that we saw, of the Osage, ends up being turned into myth and ends up being turned into an exciting sort of triumph of the FBI. And I think that, I mean, that's one way of looking at it. There's a lot of other ways of looking at it, but it, it does kind of get into one of the things I find interesting about this film in relation to Scorsese's other work is that I think that he has been telling a story about America from the beginning. I mean, there, there was a, some kind of hilarious blowback this week to uh, the now crazy film critic Ar- Armand White at National Review talking about this being Scorsese's first political film. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's kind of like, yeah, no, he's kind of been making political films for quite a long time. I think you can see in smaller ways how he's been telling a story about America and sort of the lies, I suppose, that we tell to ourselves, the myths that we tell to ourselves. And, and in that sense, this piece of history, which I think the people of Florida would not want taught in their schools, is such a vital, important thing f- to see in a movie right now. So I, I don't want to get too in the way. I am going to let Keith speak at all yet, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yield the floor to him. But um, I found a now. lot to get into <laughs> it. Keith, Keith please, t- 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 go ahead, because uh, I'm going to just keep babbling if uh, no one stops me.
2: I love this movie. I can't wait to see it again. In some ways it's not we shouldn't be starting at the ending, but the ending of this film is so good and I'm just gonna, just gonna spoil it so a little bit. So I agree with everything you said about the kind of irony of this incident, these crimes being turned into fodder for a rousing radio play sponsored by Lucky Strike and that Big ups to the FBI, but I think in having Scorsese conclude it, there's a certain amount of humility to it too. It's like Mm, this was a flawed attempt to tell the story. Here's our undoubtedly flawed attempt to tell the story as well. And coming from Scorsese, you know it is is incredibly moving (laughs) to have his presence there. But the fact that it then cuts to this you know, really beautifully filmed sequence of the Osage people and, and, and music and culture, you know, like there's a bigger, this is ultimately, I feel like it's, I'm saying this is a story that's too big for a movie to tell. But I also think as you're, as you're saying, you know, attempt to turn these things into art and entertainment because this is a, a popular, you know, film that's playing in movie theaters. And, you know, as our, as we record this doing quite well, which was heartening, heartening to see, but, but yeah, it puts this back in the conversation just as Watchmen a few years ago, put the Tulsa, uh, you know, the yes. Tulsa massacre and, Back in the conversation. And it's not, it's kind of shameful that it takes something like this to do that. I remember I had a, a college professor who would wouldn't even talk about Schindler's list because the fact that suddenly all conversations about the Holocaust were kind of filtered through Schindler's list was kind of disgraceful. And I and I get that. I definitely get that. But I also feel like it is putting things back in the conversation to have this film cover this this story and its relevance to today and its bigger implications to American history. So yeah, I think it's you know, man he's he's doing so great. He's doing such many, so many good movies these days. I listen to Irishman. It's like you know you know you could just coast at this point, Martin. You could just you could just kind of uh, do some graceful retirement movies, but he's going he's going big.
1: Right, they're they're really big. They're these are movies. are huge. He's he's bilking uh, tech companies. He's doing the best, <laughs> <laughs> the best he can do. It's, you love to see it. You love to see him taking all that money and spending it as lavishly as he as he does. That last shot, of course, feels like a callback to you know Kundoon. yeah, Kundun, which has maybe the best shot of his career or the most. Yeah, Powerful and shot another. of his career
2: another instance it's also it's another another connection is that's a film where you have this very you know Catholic director it's someone who's steeped in Catholic tradition and has mm-hmm. all these themes you know exploring a different sort of spirituality, sorting a different sort of religion so that yeah. there's with a certain like a distance and respect in a way you know I i like kind a lot I just wrote about it for the ringer uh, and and I, I think what he's doing in, in especially at the end is is somewhat similar.
1: So let's kind of go back from the from the end. Are oh, you always talking little, about the ending the whole time? Yeah, we we, we we've uh, or we could do this memento style and then just go <laughs> and then go back to the climax and then to the uh, anyway. Yeah, let's kind of start to the, the 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 to the beginning here and kind of I, maybe start with Ernest because one of the things we have to believe, I think one of the more audacious things we have to believe is that Ernest is somebody who seems quite authentically to care and to love his wife to love molly and then and then is also actively part of this conspiracy to kill her family and to take their money so
2: and to keep her in a state of of ill health too
1: right exactly exactly so it's like how do you what did you make of that character what do you make of those contradictions in i guess the way he sort of positioned between his uncle and molly
0: i personally think he's drawn as an enigma (laughs) <laughs> I, I confess that when we first see him on screen, I laughed. The facial expression that DiCaprio is putting on throughout so much of this movie with the the huge upside down yeah. frown that it seems to like extend off his face. I, like the beetled concentration, the pinched skin between his his eyebrows as he looks like he's just working very, very hard to understand the words that everybody else is saying. I'll just kind of speak to... A man who has who is not very bright and is kind of working as hard as he can just to like be in the world, and I think ultimately he's maybe drawn as somebody who's just very good at compartmentalization i don't yeah. <laughs> i don't I don't sense a whole lot of deceit where Molly is concerned i I believe he just sort of shelves uh, an entire part of his personality and his understanding because he's a limited enough thinker that he can operate with what's in front of him and not think about the contradictions and not think about how he's lying to her. And as long as he's not directly saying the words like, no, I did not just kill your sister or, you know, whatever heinous act he's just gotten up to that he's pretending he doesn't know about, I think it kind of just doesn't exist for him. There's the part of his life where he obeys his uncle and there's the part of his life where he is A husband at home in a way that's letting him off the hook, you know. There's so much that's kind of like difficult to buy about this level of ignorance, but I mean, Scorsese has said that part of what they they were exploring in this movie is just the question of like Ernest Burkhart and Molly seemed to authentically love each other, Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how that could be, and it kind of feels like he's fumbling towards an answer of. Well, he, he was just very much two different people in two different places. And the person that she knew was not the person that was uh, was doing a lot of these things.
2: And see, I, I think that what makes it disturbing is that it is the same person.
0: <laughs> that- well, it, it obviously is physically the same person. No,
2: but, but I mean, I, I also like this is someone who could just have these contradictory thoughts and you know, actions and live with himself maybe because he's he is kind of a dumb bulb but yeah the fact that he does really seem to care for her and is also actively participating in the murder of her family and and uh, attempt to to steal her money
0: and the murder of her like yeah. we, we've skipped past that a couple times and I, yeah. I I don't want to he is actively murdering her yeah it's really disturbing yeah, right. it's a
2: disturbing movie it's like you know and, and like part of what makes it work so well is that like it kind of gets on his wavelength where this is just his normal life to do these things. And it's just a kind of banality of it that, that, you know, you could behave this way and just kind of go home and, you know, and make love your wife or hang out at the pool hall and, and just be an ordinary Joe. Yeah, it, it's unsettling uh, depiction of, of evil as a very everyday thing.
1: Yeah, but he's dim <laughs> uh, and uh, he, runs, he runs. You know, you could kind of go back to a character like Harvey Keitel's character in Mean Streets if you want to kind of find somebody who is impressionable and kind of pulled in different directions. In that film, it's uh, Keitel sort of pulled between his job, really, for his mobster uncle, and then also in his loyalty to the De Niro character. But here it's like, what's interesting about the movie is how strong a read both Hale and Molly have on Ernest. You know, I, I think Hale understands quite, immediately that this is an impressionable guy that he can work basically there's not this is not a di- going to be difficult for him to kind of use him for his own you know sort of nefarious purposes and then on Molly's part she recognized she's not an idiot she recognizes right away that he's into into money like he's like she calls him what a coyote at one point she gets what he's into but then he also she also gets That his feelings for her are are real as well, and I think she gets kind of caught up in the same contradictions that confuse us in a way as the the audience, which is like, if he loves her this transparently, how could he do this to her? And, And and I think that ends up being kind of the the shock and the tragedy, you know, that befalls her character as the movie goes on at the end of the movie. I mean, that's that's kind of where where things where she gets sort of crushed because she doesn't understand how. It's not comprehensible to her how, how he could be a malevolent figure in her life as, as well as somebody who actually does care about him and cares about their, their family.
2: Yeah, she's very canny and she's fully okay with him or understanding that he's, he's venal. But she can't hand she can't I mean the idea that someone who loves you could be doing these imaginable things is just incomprehensible and it is not that she's not smart, it's just like who could possibly think this of of, of their husband who loves them you know it is it is several degrees beyond what you think someone who loves you would be capable of doing
0: that said she disappears a bit as a person for a chunk of the movie. And and I think that that's maybe its greatest flaw. There's the sequence early on where she's sitting with her sisters talking to them and they're all uh, sort of like giggling over the men around them. And she tells them, you know, he's he's not bright, but he's also not restless. Like he's looking. Yes, he wants money, but he's looking to settle down. He's not the type to run off. And he's also very handsome. And, you know, we we see in there that she's got just a little bit of uh, shallowness to her, too. Like she's she's willing to be won over by the idea of using her money as power to lock down this man that she considers very attractive, who's a white man who will potentially give her children more, you know, cachet in this society that she's in. One of the most interesting things I read in the lead up to all this, as I was looking to understand more about this movie, was the thing at the very beginning, I wrote a little thing about this for for Polygon. The thing at the very beginning where we find out that she's been deemed incompetent and has to like beg a, a white banker for the money that she's owed as part of the tribe, was most commonly, like she hasn't done anything to be considered mm-hmm. incompetent. Mm-hmm. It's because she's a full-blooded Osage. And for the most part, People deemed competent and allowed to use their own money were mixed blood or had some kind of political in. So they were, you know, considered less Injun and therefore like more allowed access to their money with the understanding that that they'd use it correctly. So by marrying a white man, she is guaranteeing that she won't have to appeal to the stranger every time she she spends money. Like she has her own venal side. But as her sisters die, and she retreats more and more into grief, we hear less and less about what's going through her head, apart from, you know, just sadness and frustration. And after a point, like the ongoing scenes of him administering medicine that they can both see is making her worse, that got a little repetitive for me, because there's no iteration in terms of what she's thinking, why she's staying with this man who keeps forcing her to take these injections when she's just visibly demonstrably getting worse and worse. It just seems to me that it would be a very reasonable thing at some point to say, look, the medicine is not making me better. And also I'm dying. Like, let's hold off on it. And she does not make the decision, but we don't know why, really.
2: Well, I think narratively she kind of has to disappear because she is getting ill. But I, I do, you do kind of miss the character in the middle of the movie. I, mm-hmm. I, I get that. I also, Lisa... the way
1: the way it comes back though, the right that flashback is so incredible when she when you see her get out of bed one night and basically tuck in this man uh, who, yeah. who has who has ki- killed her sister <sighs> yeah I mean, and then you just... also get those
2: two incredible hallucinatory sequences with the owl and then with king hale coming to visit her as well
0: woof
1: yeah yeah
2: she's so good too <laughs> like, so oh, yeah. like i like her since certain women but it's such a, such a really good performance and one thing i really like in the early parts of the film is the way it plays out the power dynamic that like everything's upside down it's like the native americans the, the osage have the power in terms of these relationships with these white people and it's the women having the power too it's kind of like she and the women around her like you know they kind of like can just pick the white guy they want up to in some ways i mean Ernest just you know there's obviously designs that are being worked, but he's a, he's her cab driver when, the, when they first meet. And, and that's not an uncommon thing at, at this point in, in the history of the region.
0: Yeah. And it's just very visible in this film that things start out reversed and people that are less likely to have power in society have the power and then they give it up. Like, systematically, one by one, they give it up to other people. In many cases, it's being taken from them via lies and chicanery, but the women in particular hand it over willingly, and the one sister that refuses to hand over her power willingly and has to be murdered is sort of handing herself over to her killers by making the choice to, to make herself oblivious. Her heavy binge drinking is putting her in a state where she's physically and emotionally helpless and can be manipulated and used and and ultimately killed. You know, she has power and instead of hanging on to it, she puts herself into a very vulnerable position. And that's just something that we see over and over throughout this film that just strikes me as a very scorsese touch you know to be to be very aware of where power lies and how e- easy it is to lose that power especially if somebody is actively thinking about taking it from you and you're not thinking about where it lies and what it means to you
1: speaking of uh, where power lies i mean th- this de niro performance is just it's just gets well, really <laughs> incredible it gets how it gets under your skin doesn't it and it's just the subtlety with which he goes about his business is one thing but then the the thing that kind of underscores that is how white supremacy is just almost like as easy as breathing it is an obvious thing that the money is not where the money should be and it needs to flow in the right direction And that's just the way things are going to go and the way he kind of you know works off of this truth that he sort of told himself is just so insidious and uh horrifying to watch and and i think it's one of those elements of the film that really is rewarded by how long the film is right that, that we see all these machinations kind of fall into place over a very long period of time rather than a, as kind of a, a short series of killings. There's like a, this is a many tentacled operation that he's sort of pulling off, you know, and then you just get these little little moments like I don't sure who the character is, but there's like a pretty respectable man around town. I think a banker who is just who's also kind of one of the, you know, heads of the KKK. And he's just, he just kind of greeted on the street you know, in the middle of a parade. And that's just the way things are. It's just like, it's incredible how it's just kind of just folded right into the society.
2: We should also, before we move on, we should talk about the uh, for the uh, on the Scorsese ness of it all, the spectacle of having DiCaprio and De Niro as you know, two definitive, defining leading men share share the screen for the first time. Well, I think they had share the screen in a Scorsese movie, I should say, because they've been in other other things together. Hello, but, Marvin's but, uh, Room. Yes, Marv, Marvin's <laughs> Room. Uh, correct. Uh, not a bad movie, if I remember correctly. But
0: um. does De Niro spank uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in Marvin's Room? No, I don't think so. I don't remember
2: mm. that. Uh, I, that's, but, that
0: seems like something that it's missing.
2: But what I wasn't necessarily expecting for all the gravity of this film is like, this is them in many scenes, this is them as a comedy team. <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah. this is the, 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 like, even, like, the awfulness of the material, what they're discussing, but, like, you know, the front's the front, the back's the back.
0: <laughs> it's such an incredible of the great bit of, bit the of comedy. Yeah. <laughs> There's also the sequence towards the end where King is trying to get his nephew to sign a contract that basically says, you know, if, if anything happens to Ernest, that that's fine, the money will go to King. And it's not 100% certain whether Ernest is struggling to figure out how to not sign the contract without getting himself into trouble or whether he's struggling to bring those two sides of his personality together. You know, the, the part that he's compartmentalized about all of the things that he does for King and what they mean, suddenly has come home to the other part of his life. And I could swear I just smell burning and, and hear gears grinding as King forces <laughs> <laughs> these two things into a collision and Ernest has to figure out how to navigate it without disobeying his uncle, which is a thing that he doesn't do. You know, we we see him at various points throughout the movie, like outright frantic because he's trying to bully somebody else to go do something difficult, illegal and dangerous so he won't have to do it. And those moments are pretty comic. But that that contract moment for me is both terrifyingly tense and really funny.
1: That's, I mean, that's kind of like the Scorsese sweet spot. And that's been that way since Mean Streets of just like you have the, the person at the top Right. You have your, your uncle in Mean Streets. you have Paul Servino and Goodfellas, you have Ace and in, in Casino. These are all pretty competent guys. But below you get below that level and you're ju- it's just a collection of uh, dum dumbs, you know, and impressionable <laughs> impressionable idiots, right? And, and Scorsese just never fails to, you know, and it happens with Wolf of Wall Street, too. It's just like you got Jordan Belfort and then you just got this just collection of, you know, high school dropouts and uh, drug dealers and, you know, idiots working below them. And all that stuff is really funny. So it's helpful to have those moments in, in a movie that's as serious and disturbing at times as uh, this one is.
0: I think for that reason, I I really want to go back to the spanking scene. Like, bringing that up was kind of meant as a joke. But uh, that sequence also fascinates me a bit for a few reasons. One is that it's one of the few moments in the movie where King really, like, bears his claws. You know, we know that he has power. We know that he's making all of these choices. But for the most part, he presents himself as an amiable granddad and people don't force him outside of that that envelope but here's a moment when he shows that you know he's he's willing to hurt people to get what he wants and the way he does it is so bizarrely ritualized and specific and just certainly not something i've seen in a scorsese movie before his his declaring that he's a mason and bringing ernest somewhere where he can be like paddled with a mason paddle <laughs> you know in a way that's very obviously intended to be torturous enough to bring a grown man to like insensibility and tears but is also just sort of comically ridiculous at the same time and just so symbolic in terms of of indicating like I'm a grown man and you're a little boy who hasn't been doing what he's been been told what to do you know it's it's putting him in his place in just such a brutally efficient way as well as a very mildly brutal way it's it's just a really interesting sequence i think
1: yeah i mean there's uh there's a lot to go over but we should probably pause for a second and, and bring in uh, Broken Arrow and talk about the things those two things have in common. So let's take a break now and we'll be back with Connections.
0: This supposed to be a suicide, you dumbbell. You didn't tell him to leave the gun. I don't know, know why hell? I told him to leave the gun. I told, told him to leave the gun. Just like you what told him, he I don't
1: know why he I didn't. I don't know why. I told him just like you
0: told him. You told him to do it in the front of the head, and why did you do it in the back of the head? I mean, it's so simple. The front is the front. The back is the back.
1: So now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. And I, the host of a uh, a Fox primetime show, uh, would like to talk about these two films as woke history. As I was saying off uh, Mike earlier, Broken Arrow, sort of the the Wuhan of the uh, of the woke mind virus. Be, beware, beware that. <laughs> anyway, so Broken Arrow is a film that is trying to address an audience that has seen and had, you know, sort of ingrained in the into them a certain perception of the way uh, the West was, and you know, impressions of Native Americans that that are potentially probably not terribly well aligned with the truth, or, or might be somewhat narrow. And this is kind of what we're getting to with Killers of the Flower Moon is, is to just to show you this piece of history this this essential piece of history that illustrates the relationship between white american and settlers and the native population and something that maybe we haven't learned about before in both cases so that at a minimum is what they have in common yes
0: i mean i i think both of these movies are also message movies you know they're expressly aimed at educating audiences and suggesting to audiences that uh, like the stereotypes that they've lived with are are incorrect. And there are people out promoting the movie, uh, promoting Killers of the Flower Moon, you know, talking expressly about providing a, a contradiction to and a correction for movies like Broken Arrow, in fact. There's just, a, I think, a sense in both of these movies that they're intended as as very conscious correctives uh, for the historical record.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think there's kind of a excitement to that, too. I mean, I, I can't speak. I wasn't around in 1950 to be thrilled by Broken Arrow's courageous defiance of everything that I thought I knew about Native American culture, but I can certainly say that what Scorsese has done here is really made a film that fits our current cultural moment in a very significant way at a time when history that makes white children uncomfortable is discouraged from being taught and so now you know we have this huge major motion picture uh, that's everywhere that is in 3,500 theaters or screens I should say that's going to be on Apple TV Plus at some point Uh, that's going to be in a lot of discussions that is going to tell you something that you don't know and uh, give you this piece of history that maybe you're not learning in school but might tell you something really important about American Attitude's uh, in American actions toward Native Americans that might kind of shake you up a little bit, and so in that in that sense, it's you know it's a tremendously valuable thing.
0: I do think that you know I complained a little bit about Broken Arrow being a little a little stiff, a little preachy, a little self conscious of the messaging it was bringing across. Not only do I not get any of that from Killers of the Flower Moon. That ending is stylized. You know, it's a, a conscious sort of step back from the story and into a different mode of storytelling in a way that's very mannered, but that feels a lot more natural, I think, than some of the things that happen in, in Broken Arrow. But more importantly, Lily Gladstone and Leonardo DiCaprio are only 11 years apart in age. So that, that just makes it a <laughs> superior movie.
1: Man, you are... It was, <laughs> I, I would say that the, the age gap thing was, seems to be a sticking point for Tasha in this Broken Arrow picture.
0: <laughs> I'm kind I, of a broken record on Broken Era.
2: <laughs> in terms of what you were saying, Scott, I mean, I'm really haunted by the documentary The Act of Killing, which mm. came out in t- 2012, which revisits in Indonesia where genocide happened generations on where, where basically the people responsible were never held to account. Mm, yeah. And it's so easy to look at that film and think, well, this happened far away in a different part of the world, where things were less civilized. But really, this, this this is a film that shows you like, no, it happened here, and you were an active participant in the culture that kind of where it happened and, and then got forgotten or covered up or, you know, it was inconvenient, so it was pushed to the side. So, yeah, I think what you're talking about in terms of like how we're dealing with history right now and, and with the textbooks and, but as you said, the decisions to not include items in the curriculum that that, uh, make white kids uncomfortable when it's just history. It's just the the facts of where America came from that you have to deny and kind of to live in that denial. Yeah, it it is a timely film despite being a piece of history.
1: And I think this is, again, the value of that whole radio show bit in the coda is in killers of flower mood is this this idea that history can get processed in a way it gets mythologized in a way that elides so much stuff that leaves out all the stuff that is important because it serves whoever is telling that the myth and that that is america certainly not alone in doing that but that is something that america does is tell these stories about themselves and i think you know a film like broken arrow can serve to again, at least kind of shake people out of their assumptions about the Apache, about Native American tribes, about the nature of white settlers in that area. It's important uh, to kind of get a different kind of perspective. And so um, these films have the, the will and the passion to get that point across.
2: I think the contrast is that Broken Arrow is ultimately... A film in which you know people need to put their differences aside and we can't all get along and it's a big enough country for everyone and i think the depiction of the story that's told in killers of the flower moon is it definitely has is not going it's not going to offer that takeaway it's a more complex and morally sticky <laughs> icky uh sort of film in that in that way
0: But at the same time, you can see them both, like, portraying just a very similar attitude. You know, specifically, there's a moment in Killers of the Flower Moon where we're told that a white man has more chance of being convicted of shooting a dog than murdering an Indian. And at the point where that line came in, it actually really surprised me because we'd had so much emphasis on the Osage as, you know, rich and successful. Like, this is certainly the first movie I've ever seen where a bunch of native tribesmen have bought up all of the fanciest, most up to the moment cars in the entire area and are like racing them in the street. But we're told on and off via the the white characters that there's there's just this like prevailing attitude, this prevailing like legal, emotional, moral, uh, cultural understanding that native lives aren't worth anything and that their deaths aren't meaningful. And King more or less says as much, despite you know all of his social attitudes and uh, public good works doing. And in the same sort of way, in, in Broken Arrow, we see the the white folks' opinion on natives back in the towns, you know, and when they're spouting the, the sentiment that gets us to the politics that uh, that we have at the time. Like in in both cases, I think there's just a very clear line uh, being drawn, like an arrow being drawn from here are the attitude, here are the prevailing attitudes among whites. Here is the public policy that that stems from, and here's the behavior that that stems from, and that and the damage done from people spreading these ideas and and these prejudices.
1: So Keith, there's uh, uh we have a couple of marriages crossing cultures so that's a pretty significant part of both movies and both a source of hope and despair in a way about how they how they ultimately function how they ultimately end up
2: yeah there are different sorts of despair though aren't there the the one is that the in Broken Arrow you get a marriage it's like kind of too pure for this world that in the in the martyrdom of the wife, whereas in *Killers of the Flower Moon*, it's, it's such a we kind of got into it quite a bit already with with the first discussion, but it's such a complex and ultimately you know upsetting <laughs> depiction of a marriage, uh, mm-hmm. even with taking out the historical context, the idea that one partner could be so at once there's no sign that that their love is anything less than sincere, while we'll also having murderous designs on the partner's entire family and ultimately the partner themselves as well. I mean, it is honestly one of the elements of this film I'll be chewing on the longest is is that
0: depiction of a marriage. I think one of the elements of the film I'll be chewing on the longest is that last moment where Molly says, like, what was in that Mm. medicine you're injecting into me? And Ernest pauses and visibly struggles and then says, medicine?
2: insulin yeah
0: i feel like that's one of the most like debatable moments in the movie in terms of what people see in it because again kind of what i see is somebody trying to reconcile two truths that he's just managed to keep separate in his brain like yes he's injecting this Thing into his wife that is very clearly killing her, that he was told to inject in her by somebody who's very clearly killing natives with Ernest's help. And yet he keeps seemingly convincing himself that he's just giving her m- her medicine and that everything's going to be fine. And the idea of the love story between them doesn't work unless you believe that on some level he is successfully convincing himself that he's just helping that he's just giving her the medicine that she needs. But that moment where he struggles with an answer and then just claims he was giving her her medicine. I, I think depending on how you want to read it, you could say that he's lying. So that's in the sense that I'm, I'm always interested in what our listeners uh, think about specific moments. I'm, I'm most interested in that one.
1: That is just such the essential, You like know, I said before, sort of audacious, element of the film is just kind of understanding this love story and the contradictions that are just so obvious and how Ernest is able to kind of keep these kind of two parts of himself separate even even though there are plenty of moments that before that happen where he knows he's doing something quite wrong and, and is covering it up i mean when the uh bureau of investigations shows up at his house and wants to see if they can talk to molly he he does not let them, he, and he doesn't let anybody but himself be the person to take care of her. Uh, which, you know, I mean, again, you could you could say, hey, that's a husband being a husband, wanting to be the the, the sole and only caregiver of of his wife. But the jig is up when the authorities come, and you're you know why you're keeping the, them away from her. It's all fascinating, but it all it all plays. And in that moment that you're talking about, that final. Confrontation or as confrontational, I guess, as Molly is even capable of getting, where she really just asks him quite plainly and directly, you know, what medicine he'd been giving her or what was in the medicine or something. It's great, (laughs) it's so powerful. I found it very believable. And I think that is that you know, there's a certain sense of shame that comes off him at that moment, but then also, you know, we just see again what a small person he is, you know, what what a pitiful, pathetic, impressionable. Mook, uh, to put it in a, a Scorsese, another you know, early Scorsese term, he, he, he is. I mean, this is like one of those low level Scorsese idiots, really, ultimately, uh, in earnest.
2: Not to sidetrack us too much, but uh, the one element that gets kind of played down from the David Grant book is it's also about how the Bureau of Investigation became the FBI as we know it, and Tom White, the and in- chief investigator, is is you get a lot more about him in the book, but Jesse Plemons plays him in the film and he makes every moment count. Like that when he first shows up in that hat, it's so straight, it's so I mean, it's just funny. But also the fact that you get this really canny character from Texas, so not you know, not, not like an Eastern sharpster coming in, someone who knows this part of the world, who just has, you could tell he just has, it's like Columbo. You could tell he has Ernest's number, like the moment he lays eyes on him, too. It's like, yeah. you know, when you watch Columbo, you can kind of see the moment where everything clicks into place. And, you know, it's usually fairly early on in the episode. and uh, That's kind of that moment here.
0: I think it's also just interesting to note that, the original plan for this movie was for the for it to center on the Tom White character and for DiCaprio to play the Tom White character mm. and Scorsese says that uh, DiCaprio came to him as uh, Scorsese and Eric Roth were uh, figuring out how to adapt the book how to crack it and was the one who suggested like no this should it should center on uh, Ernest and I should I should play Ernest
2: I think that makes all the difference it's a, such a major change of focus is really quite uh, it has rippling effects to the whole thing.
0: Yeah, it's extremely important. I think also just in terms of, you know, Broken Arrow is an outsider story. It's about an outsider learning as much as he can, like in a spirit of humility in order to be able to like blend in and and speak to the Apache, like on their terms, like coming from a place of as much understanding as he can bring to bear, you know, as a white man, as his... Uh, Tudor says, like, you still don't think you speak like an Apache, you still don't think like one, but you're getting there. Broken Arrow is a movie about an outsider trying to come to terms with a culture that isn't his own. And part of the way he does that is uh, by marrying a local woman. Although, whether to the film's credit or not, I guess you'd have to tell me, it, you know, he he learns the language. He learns their ways. We're told that he doesn't learn to think like an Apache because, you know, he wasn't raised in his Apache. That's, that's maybe not possible. But the film doesn't ever portray the marriage as something that he's doing like to try to to bond himself with the tribe or, you know, to to bring two groups together. Like it's it's not a it's not anything on any level like a a political marriage to sort of seal this bond. It's just a man falling in love. And again, I think the execution of it's very stiff. But I really did like the part where he he talks about how he's always been kind of a loner and he's never missed people before and meeting her makes him for the first time miss somebody that he's away from. I thought that was just a very sweet way of expressing that. But the similar marriage that we get in Killers of the Flower Moon is very much about kind of a sealing a deal uh, between, you know, two different groups, between a white man and a native woman. It's, it's about kind of profit for both of them in terms of her taking a little bit of a social step up and him also taking a little bit of a social step up and profiting in terms of uh, things he can afford and her getting her hands on a, a handsome dude and him getting him a hand, his hands on a, a, a very pretty lady, you know, they're both in theory boosted by it. And then they're both laid low by, by it, though her much more so than him. I don't know. There's there's a lot of complicated layers in the way they both benefit from the marriage initially, and uh, like are both taken to a terrible place as a, a result of it. It's a, a much more complicated knot than Broken Arrow. But then in the end, I think we, you know we were talking about like what exactly is he thinking? What does he mean when he says he there wasn't anything in the medicine except medicine? I think maybe the important thing there is it doesn't matter what he believes when he says it what matters is that she has learned definitively that she's not going to get satisfaction out of him she's not going to get an apology she's not going to get anything admitted and her making the decision to kind of uh, cut that hope and walk away from him is kind of the the movie's big sacrifice in the end she she understands that it isn't going to be a loss to walk away from him and she that's just something that she needs to do to regain herself. And if you contrast that with the end of Broken Arrow where the sacrifice is, the native woman dies, Mm -hmm. and then no great action is taken as a result from it, the gist of the movie is that Jefford's is ready to go to war for her like he he wants to seek vengeance and is told in no uncertain terms like no don't you're not going to get the chance to do this we're not going to avenge her because that's just not the way this should go it's a harsh and painful situation for both of the women in these movies for very different reasons and with very different ends. But I, I, just I think it's inherently fascinating in both cases what people are asked to let go of and live with.
1: I think there's a lot of integrity to the ending of Broken Arrow in that respect of of because I think you could have an ending where it's like where his wife is killed and then it's and then the ending is like well I carried her in my heart and it's like well good for you <laughs> she's dead though <laughs> and, I, and I think I think the fact that the way it's worked into the larger struggle the larger sacrifice the larger plot in terms of maintaining the peace is you know pretty profound and and uh and kind of gives the ending a lot more heft than just the kind of noble sacrifice thing so uh that, that i respected that about it quite a bit one th- essential thing to both of these films that i think we need to talk about is the fact that we have here two films telling stories about indigenous people by non-indigenous people Storytellers, and how does that play in both cases? I, I think you can say Keith had already talked about sort of the ending of one, one interpretation, I guess, of the ending of Killers of Flower Boon is Scorsese sort of acknowledging the inherent limitations of he as a white filmmaker telling the story. There's no, of course, no such acknowledgement in Broken Arrow, and in Broken Arrow, I think you do. Some of the limitations are laid pretty bare, you know, particularly you know, which which you know maybe speaks to certain conventions of the time, like you know, red face and that sort of thing. But but uh, the perspective of the movie is you know, we we start from is Jimmy Stewart's perspective. We start with him; he's the one who's sort of leading us through the through the story. And I don't think there's a huge amount of is kind of thoughtful as the film is. There's not a huge amount of acknowledgement. Uh, on the part of Broken Arrow that there's any kind of problem or any kind of limitation with telling a story about the Apache entirely from Jeffrey's perspective but uh, what what do you all think about this sort of you know, I guess inherent sort of knot that uh, is uh, at the center of both of these movies
0: I mean I think ultimately you can't really fault a movie made in the 1950s America for being made by a, a white man yeah <laughs> like a, a, a mainstream-ish movie, like who else was going to make that movie? I, I do feel pretty firmly that while people should be allowed to tell their own stories, you know, that people telling their own stories should be recognized and prioritized above all else. I think if you create a world where people are only allowed to tell their own stories, I mean, for, for one thing, you get like centuries of novels written only about men, you know, some of the the great classics of literature about women characters are, are written by men. And I would definitely prefer that to, you know, during during the time period where authors were almost exclusively men. Yeah. They were only allowed to tell story about stories about male characters in situations that they themselves had been in, like about their own cultures so, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm not in favor of siloing people into a you you cannot make a movie about black characters unless you're black. You cannot make a movie about a woman unless you're a woman bringing in. The perspective of the people whose stories you're telling, I think, is is very important, like consulting them, understanding them to the best degree that you can. But eh, we weren't going to get that in 1950. Eh, they, they did what they could with uh, what they had and, and the perspective they had.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I really don't want to say to use a word like fault or talk about it, it that way, other than just saying. I guess maybe the question ends up being like, what are the limitations? You know, what are the limitations that are apparent in a movie like these? Not not it, which doesn't necessarily mean that the these stories can't be told by white filmmakers, but what you know? You kind of wonder what some of the blind spots of these films might end up being. I guess.
0: I think Molly disappearing from the film for so long is exactly that. We have historical record in terms of some of like what physically happened and, and what came to light in the court case. But for the most part any interaction between Ernest and Molly, between Ernest and King, uh, between Molly and the community, like all of this is invented. All of it is is dramatized sort of understanding of and exploration of like what must have happened here to produce these results. Mm-hmm. And it's just very clear that Scorsese is more interested in interrogating the relationship between Ernest and King, for instance, than Molly's relationship with her husband. You know, we get a fair amount of scenes between the two of them, but like less and less insight about who she is, what she's feeling, what she wants. I, and that to me is kind of a blind spot.
2: I think it's good to think of as any of these as not being the last word, it be a broken arrow or mm-hmm. the radio drama about the Osage or Killers of Flower Men. There's, uh, there's an article in the Hollywood Reporter last week where Christopher Coate, who was an Osage language consultant, said that you know, he, he, I think uh, Martin Scorsese not being Osage, I think he did a great, great job of representing our people But he had complicated feelings about the film because he wanted a story told from an Osage perspective – and that would take an Osage filmmaker almost uh, to, to get that deep into it. So, you know, I'd like to see that film too. You know, maybe, you know, the, there's another way to tell this story or certainly as, as things like Reservation Dogs and, and other, other projects have shown that the, there's a lot of talent among Native American uh, creators out there. And, and hopefully, you know, maybe this will even be like a, a, a open the door a little bit just in terms of, of having, you know, this film be seen.
1: I mean, you do at least appreciate then kind of the richness of the detail with which the world of of Silver flower moon is evoked. I mean, I, I guess that's what the 200 million dollar budget is for to kind of just give you this, you know, to bring this world to life. And it was so vividly and get you kind of, and, and, you know, and I think the performances that we do get from native performers are uniformly fantastic and add quite a lot to the film you know there's certainly a deference and a respect and and a, a curiosity on the part of Scorsese and, and the filmmakers to try to represent the Osage culture as accurately and respectfully as possible and it certainly pays off I mean it you know it is a f- it is such an immersive experience and I think there's some of that in uh, broken arrow as well i mean it's i i, I think we've been discussing this for a, a while but like there's a way to make a film like broken arrow that would be just entirely earnest and clunky that would not really get into some of there, be, there's a lot of sort of thorny issues within apache culture uh there, there's some confrontations that are quite uncomfortable that Jeffords has to experience there's a lot of difficult decisions the coaches has to make i mean all of this stuff shows a, a respect for the sort of you know intelligence and, and humanity of the apache i think but there is of course uh lots of other things to talk about but uh and I, we hope that you our listeners will join in on the conversation too and have, have some perspective uh you can gain some of that perspective by watching Broken Arrow, which is currently streaming on Peacock, it's also rentable through various digital services. It's available on DVD and Blu-ray, and also it's it's on like all those ad-free things your 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 Roku's and your Tubies. and your Tubis and your whatever the heck it else is there. So so just, so you can see Broken Arrow. Uh, Killers of Flower Moon is currently in theaters, but it will eventually turn up on Apple TV Plus. However, come on, people, you gotta yeah, see, it see on the screen. Yeah, I it get out of the house, please. <laughs> it's a please. big screen movie. Please, unless there's something, unless you're like chained to a, the radiator or something, and try to, you want to try to get out and see it because it's good. So uh, we'll be back with uh, your next picture show. Finally, it's time to recommend a film or a film related item that complements this set of episodes we call Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Uh, when we were discussing, you know, potential films to pair with *Colors of the Flower Moon*, uh, one title that that uh, came up briefly was the documentary Incident at Oglala* from uh, 1992. This is a film that was quite a sensation at Sundance. I think. It- it, did Robert Robert Redford narrated it did he not? Uh-huh. <laughs> so that that helps so, you know that helps you be a Sundance sensation but it's quite a good film this is a film that's directed by Michael Apted, and it has to do with this shootout this Pine Ridge shootout at an Oglala Sioux reservation in South Dakota on June 26 1975 to FBI agents were searching for Leonard Peltier, who was wanted in connection with an assault. These FBI agents were shot and killed in the shootout. And, of course, Peltier was eventually uh, found and then blamed and is currently serving time for those crimes. And this is a, of is a film that recounts the incident and tries to get a little bit to the bottom of what might have happened and uh, ultimately kind of makes an argument i would say on on peltier's behalf wouldn't you keith
2: yeah it it does and 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 certainly around just the the general murkiness around the the incident uh, as well it's it's quite good i i I liked it too i should i and you might if the story might sounds from sounds familiar it it this also the inspiration for the film thunderheart also directed by michael abtad which is kind of a fictionalization of it and it you know it's not I saw it recently. It, it's not bad. It, it it definitely has some of the flaws that you, you know, the kind of way we talked about it in terms of perspective and, and so on and so forth. But there's there's a fair amount of cult- respect and cultural detail in in that story as well.
1: It's so Oglala does a very fine job of rounding up a lot of different voices. I think it does a really nice job of giving you a sense of the terrain. It, you know, it made me miss, you know, an, an era when, docu- you know, documentaries shot on film i mean this is like a a very Mm -hmm. filmic movie and you can kind of feel it it's got a lot of a lot of really nice texture to it uh and it was a you know i mean i don't know if it's a film that gets talked about a a great deal now even though people have tried forever to get uh justice to seek justice on leonard peltier's behalf but it was a huge deal in 1992 i do do remember that and uh and uh really worth seeking out and in particularly in light of killers of the flower moon it would have made a good pairing. i think maybe we felt it was maybe a little too obscure or something for us to make it kind of the main or maybe not enough of a classic but uh worth seeking out Galala.
2: Can I take a, a, a qualified rec- recommendation at, at the end of that? And the qualification is all, all on me. Uh, uh-huh. It's a film because I haven't finished watching it yet. <laughs> I got it, like halfway through and I had to do something else. But it's a film I wanted to see for a while. Uh, 2009 documentary called Real Engine, directed by uh, Neil Diamond, who's also like the narrator and uh, co-directed with Catherine Bainbridge and Jeremiah Hayes. And it is kind of a freewheeling uh Tour through the history of Native Americans, depictions of Native Americans on film, and you know, so far it's it's, it's really fascinating. Like there's this whole, much like Oscar Micheaux and other Black filmmakers, there there was a in the silent era there were a fair number of Native American filmmakers, and like the kind of, that kind of fell has been forgotten and fallen by the wayside. He um, puts a lot of. Blame for what we, you know, what became became the the uh, stereotypical depiction of Native Americans on on the film Stagecoach, and I get there's a whole other episode we could do about John Ford perhaps trying to reckon with uh, what uh, what he those depictions throughout the rest of his career. But but um, anyway, unless it really like like just craps out in the, in the second half, I, I, it's a, it's a very good documentary, and I'm looking forward to finishing
1: it at some point. Okay, what in the title again?
2: A real engine, R E E L. Yeah, and an engine. Um, Oh,
1: okay. There you go. That's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Tasha, do you want to tell us about our next episodes?
0: Sophia Coppola's new movie, Priscilla, is a faithful adaptation of Elvis and Me, Priscilla Presley's 1985 memoir about the experience of meeting and falling for a 24-year-old rock star when she was just 14 years old. Sticking closely to Priscilla's book and her chronicle of her 13-year relationship with Elvis means Coppola moves the king of rock and roll to the background. His music is barely featured in the movie, and many of the biggest events of his career are only suggested or glimpsed in passing through the lens of Priscilla's isolation, confusion, and hunger for his attention. In Priscilla's eyes, her famous boyfriend and eventual husband kept her at a distance while he toured or made movies. She was left behind, ensconced at Graceland as a kind of cosseted pet in a relationship Elvis and his assistants carefully negotiated with her parents. For those who followed Coppola's career, it's impossible not to see the narrative similarities between this true-life story and another one that Coppola directed, 2006's Marie Antoinette, about another 14-year-old in a carefully negotiated relationship that left her isolated and emotionally hungry in the lap of luxury and a relationship to a king. Their stories end very differently, but there's an emotional resonance between these two teenagers separated by centuries, and we'll explore it next time on The Next Picture Show.
1: For now, we welcome your feedback on Broken Arrow, Killers of the Flower Moon, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Tasha Robinson?
0: I am the film and streaming editor over at Polygon.com. I am on, you know what, just blues guy these days all right at tasha robinson i haven't deleted the other account but uh some specific things going on on twitter have convinced me that uh it's really time to cut the cord i don't think i'm ever going to delete my account because uh there is a rich history there that i will miss when the entire site potentially folds in on itself and disappears into a hole like the house at the end of poltergeist <laughs> but for the moment uh you can find me posting social media-wise pretty much exclusively on Blue Sky. Keith, what about you?
2: I'm also on Blue Sky at KFIP3000, and and I'll occasionally promote an article on, on what used to be called Twitter, but, but whatever. Uh, but I'm a, I'm a freelance writer. I, I write kind of all over the place, places like Vulture and The Ringer, where I just had an article about uh, Kundoon and uh, GQ and TV Guide, and also a site called The Reveal, thereveal.substack.com, which is a several times a week newsletter that I co-write with my friend uh, Scott Tobias. Scott Tobias, where can we find you?
1: <laughs> oh, well, uh, uh, other than The, the Reveal, um, you can find me on... Uh, Still on on Twitter, which is very interesting. To, this is part of the podcast. It's going to be like a, a you, you time lapse this thing, and it's going to be about the death of Twitter somehow. <laughs> but uh, I, I'm on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. I'm on Blue Sky at Scott Tobias. There's no underscore there. Uh, the reveal, of course, is my is my main gig. But I'm also in uh, New York Times, uh, Guardian, uh, and Vulture, and other fine. Publications. our absent co-host Genevieve Kosky is kind of not really doing much of social media at all uh, other than just uh, some Instagram Her dog's stuff. very active on social media. Very much so, yes. But uh, she is the senior uh, TV editor for Vulture, so... That's a pretty big job. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at NextPicturePod, and on Blue Sky at The Next Picture Show. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film-spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time.